Are you a woman who wants to honor God with your life, but aren't sure how your work makes an eternal difference in the kingdom of God? Women in Work is a faith and work organization that is for every woman in every season. They produce a podcast and countless resources to inspire women to confidently step into their God-given calling and leverage their unique potential for God's glory. They also have a new book releasing, Women in Work, Bearing God's Image and Joining in His Mission Through Our Work. And you can pre-order your copy today. Go to womenwork.net to learn more. That's womenwork.net. Anchored Hope provides practical help to those hurting by anchoring their hope in Jesus and helping others gain a better understanding of His promises. We offer reputable biblical counsel to those suffering or experiencing difficult seasons. Our counselors are highly trained and bring a vast experience in addressing the various issues of life. To meet with a counselor, visit anchoredhope.co to find a counselor that fits your needs and schedule an appointment today. Today on This Versus That, we have Dr. Joel Mutabale as our guest. Joel serves as the Director of Theology and Research for Proverbs 31 Ministries and Lisa Turkhurst. He loves studying and teaching the brilliant truths found in Scripture and unpacking how they relate to our everyday lives. Today, we're talking with Joel about one of the key tensions of the Christian life, godly striving versus a works-based sanctification. This question is at the heart of so many discussions and differences in the church throughout its history. Now, we won't solve all of it today, but we trust God that He will lead us toward wisdom as we discuss it. Thanks for joining us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's get started. So, Joel, we're super excited to have you to talk about this issue. And it's kind of a theological issue, but I think I've experienced it mostly as a pastor. So I was a pastor for 20 years before working with Anchored Hope. And I experience it now as a counselor. As a pastor, the way I experienced this was just in ministering to people, whether preaching or counseling or helping them work through things, I would notice that some people, if if I would give them a challenge from Scripture, they would receive that almost as a legalistic thing. Like They would almost yeah. take it on as a burden, sometimes because there was this over-scrupulous, like, I want to please the Lord desire deep within them. But then there was a sense of, I'm not measuring up. And then there were, so there were the people who in a sense were afflicted and they needed the comfort of the gospel, but I also saw the people who were maybe too comforted and they needed a little bit of the affliction of the gospel, the challenge yeah. of the gospel. Yeah. And there's a danger on either side because we, we know scripturally, like we are justified by grace through faith. We are sanctified by God's grace at work within us, and yet we are cooperating with that grace in a way in which we are active and not passive. How do you differentiate striving unto the Lord, striving after holiness versus what can easily lapse into more of a works-based mentality regarding sanctification? For me, one of the things that I've found is you're exactly right that it seems to be like a pivot you know, and that pivot can go one way or another really quick. And so I think in one sense, it's a tension to be managed. But one of the biggest questions is like, where do our motivations for living the Christian life flow from? And I think we've bought into at times this idea that just because we start in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we'll end in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And yet there are times when we can start really, I mean, we can just go through the list of, of biographies of Christian leaders, ministry leaders, whatever you want to do, church history in general. And you find out that very good things, when they become elevated to God, things become incredibly destructive for the believer. And so there's this sense of like, where does our desire to do the things that we do, where does it flow from? And how consistent are you and I in what I like to refer to a theology of remembrance of recalling that thing back to us, of going back to that sense of our affections, going back to that sense of, of why am I motivated to, to do this? Because like I said, you can start with all the right motives and then find yourself sliding in this place where you look up, it could be five days or five years, and you're like, how did I get here? Very simple, but also kind of funny one for me is I love coaching my kids. I've got three boys, they play football. I love coaching them. And I started because it's like I traveled for a living for so long. So I never got to coach them on anything. And so I did that. And then all of a sudden I looked up and it was like seven years, eight years. Actually, no, it's been longer than that, y'all. This is crazy. Liam's 12. So it's been like almost 10 years and I've been coaching and I was like exhausted and I'm tired and I'm burnt out and I'm being sharp with these kids. It's no longer fun. And I'm like, wait a minute, like, why am I doing this? And why did I stick with this for this long without ever going back to just asking that kind of simple question. And so when it comes to our works, when it comes to what we do as a result of who we love, it's a real danger to bypass and to not look back at the person that we love and just do all of these things because it can be dangerous. I, one of the passages that I think is super helpful for me is Philippians 1, 27. And I think this frames this kind of concept really well. Paul says to this church in Philippi, just one thing, as citizens of heaven. So the framework of why do we do what we do and how does it happen? I love what Paul does. He frames it in the context of, actually, it's political. It's a, it's a kingdom language. So you're a citizen of heaven. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. So live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Both of those words in Greek, citizen and gospel, are both political terms that actually are framing the believer's identity and their role and how they live their lives within the context of, we've got a king. His name's Jesus. He sits on a throne. And we want to be like faithful citizens of, of the kingdom, but it becomes super dangerous for any citizen to just keep doing the things that they do and then forget that there's actually a king giving orders. There's actually a king that's holding all these things together. And when a citizen does their own thing for their own reasons, like in the ancient world, there was a specific term to this. It's called rebellion. It's a revolt because you've actually usurped yourself as a type of king, as a type of leader, but maybe you didn't start that way. So I think all those things are super important as we try to figure out like, yeah, why do we do what we do and where did we start? Where are we here and where are we going? Yeah, that's so good. Where do you think new creation theology comes into play here? I grew up in a tradition that was very much just pray the prayer and then get busy serving the Lord. Mm -hmm. And then as I got older and came into a different theological tradition, there was very much this emphasis on the gospel surrounding everything. But sometimes we would do a prayer confession every Sunday and there it was almost this tone of, we're not going to necessarily get much better, but thank God for his abundant grace. And thankfully we're forgiven. And it just seems like both of those are leaning too much in one direction. Where does new creation theology fit into bringing both of those together in a way that's healthy and still centered on the gospel? Yeah, that's so good. There's a New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, that does a lot of work on creation, new creation, that whole motif. So everything I say here, I'm basically just ripping him off. So you can go check out N.T. Wright. But basically, I think the pattern of scripture is super important for us here. And even that idea of heaven, 
Heaven is this far off place that at some point we're going to be redeemed, rescued out of this really bad place called earth and go to this place out in the heaven somewhere and we're going to be rescued out. And it's like, well, that's not the language of the New Testament. <laughs> that's not the understanding of the ancient Israelites. The ancient Israelites and then and Paul in the New Testament and Jesus himself, the idea is actually, no, we're bringing heaven to earth. The idea is that creation was, it was originally created good. So a lot of times, this is another thing. Our theology starts at Genesis 3, and I think that's a huge disaster for us. Mm -hmm. Our theology actually has to start in Genesis 1. And so Genesis 1 is a prototypical Edenic temple. Like You've got Eden that is on earth, but it's not earth. This is another huge distinction that we have to maintain. So when Adam and Eve are placed in Eden as vice regents, as a type of prophet, priest, and king in Eden, they're given a divine task. The divine task is to take the presence, the authority, the power of the king, and to spread it out into the world. So the idea is that Eden would become true in the ends of the earth. This is how creation was intended to be. And yet the fall, and this is the biblical pattern. So you've got creation, you've got the fall, which is actually anti-creation. There's a theologian by the name of Plantinga, I think it's Cornelius Plantinga or Alvin Plantinga, where he talks about despoiling shalom. And it's this idea that when sin enters in Genesis chapter three, there are a billion strands that connect creation together that God has put together. What sin has done is has ruptured shalom. It has destroyed those strands and they have and created separation. So what is the storyline of scripture? The storyline of scripture is actually God, Yahweh, being adamant to have creation back together. Well, what is creation? Creation is earthly and cosmic. Creation is God's people and the world that he created. And so we've got creation, you've got anti-creation, and then you've got new creation, the idea of we want to bring this thing all back together. And in new creation, as we think about that, and you ask that question of like new creation theology, the idea is in this already, but not yet, the idea on this side of eternity, I this is just Joel now like the, theologizing, I guess. It's not perfection. The aim is in perfection here, right? My, my friend and boss, Lisa Turker, says this, that imperfect progress is still progress, right? Mm. Like, like, don't despise the imperfect nature of progress because you're still making progress. You're still moving forward. And so when it comes to something like new creation, when it comes to how we ought to live our lives in light of the cross of Jesus, the aim on this side of eternity isn't necessarily perfection. It's actually who are we becoming and what type of person are we becoming? And what type of human are we imaging? Do we image our first father and Adam and sin, or do we image the second Adam, the greater Adam, Jesus? And so in that, in who we're imaging, in who we're becoming, this is the act of new creation. Why? Because there's eternity to be lived that all these things are going to have implications for. It's not like we're investing in something now that isn't going to have a return when eternity comes, when the new heavens, the new earth arrive. This is a wild thought. The way we invest in our lives now and the relationships that we have with other people today, the way that we seek for emotional, spiritual, and physical health on this side of eternity, in some way, in some fashion, is actually going to play itself out in eternity. Relationships don't cease in the new heavens and the new earth. The picture of Eden is of a city that is a garden temple with all kinds of stuff happening. And so I think that's where new creation theology steps in, is that it's this aim that says God wanted creation. Creation was despoiled by sin, but God wasn't going to let that happen. And so he is recreating. And the way that he recreates is through redemption, restoration, and reconciliation. I love the directional nature of that. Rebecca and I are both biblical counselors. and We're often having the conversation with people about 
what direction are you moving? Sometimes yeah. when people enter into counseling, they're thinking in terms of accomplishment and am I stacking enough accomplishments up to feel like I'm making progress? Yeah. Which often rarely does it help that person feel like they're making progress. They usually see what they haven't done rather than what they have. And so we're often reframing that conversation to say, it's really not about the accomplishments you're stacking up. It's about what direction are you moving? Are you moving in the direction of repentance? Are you moving in the direction of Christ-likeness? Or are you moving in the direction of selfishness and kind of curving the soul inward on itself, as Augustine would say? Yeah. And so I'm curious, there is a way, I think, to strive after quote unquote godliness that really is more about self-improvement and self-serving goals. How do you help a person distinguish that between the Christ-like direction of the Christian life? One of Paul's favorite words in the New Testament is one another. It's everywhere in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writing. And this is, becomes really important. I think, this again, just Joel, we live in a hyper-individualized society. We're consistently thinking what's best for me, myself, and I. And even when we have other people in mind, the lens by which we think of other people is first through, and what do I get out of it? If we were to be honest, I think in the conversations that are happening in our brain as we're engaging in relationships with other people, there's probably some type of subconscious narrative that's happening in the back of our mind that is consistently thinking, how is this going to benefit me? And it's actually incredibly dangerous because it's subtle, because it's hidden in the human heart. And so with all of that said, why does Paul use this phrase, one another? He's dealing with churches in the New Testament that are hyper-diverse. You go to the church in Philippi, you go to the church in Corinth, the church in Ephesus. These are people that are differentiated by socioeconomic status, ethnic status, cultural status. I mean, this is wild how much they have in, in difference to the point where they would never be together in social settings. So you get them in a church and they're united by Jesus, the Messiah, and all of a sudden the Greco-Roman world's like, y'all are whack. This is wild. <laughs> How in the world do you all have everything in common? And you break bread and you eat and you have everything in this, like the Acts chapter two kind of idea coming together. Like, how is this possible? And Paul says, well, it's because they live their life, their Christian life as one another. And a reciprocal pronoun requires reciprocity. So in another sense, the way that I love my wife is a reciprocity. I love her with this intense affection, with this ferocious love, right? There is a, an emphasis behind it. There's a vulnerability there because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give and my expectation and reciprocity is she's going to receive and it's going to be the natural inclination that she gives to the same extent. Like she's matching and she's trying to out, that's Paul's language, outdo one another in love, you know? And then the horror uh, and, the, and the vulnerability and the challenge is what happens if it's not reciprocated? What happens if I give all this love and all of a sudden this other person doesn't? And so for the Christian life, this idea, I think, of one another becomes incredibly powerful because it actually creates a sense of deep humility inside of us that reframes our ambitions. Because that selfish ambition of me, myself, and I is the ethos of the world and is a byproduct of sin that what you, you know, you had said, Augustine, that Curvitus Invictus, it's the heart bent in on itself. Luther and Calvin plagiarized the mess out of Augustine later on. And Augustine really gets this from Paul from before that. What the gospel is doing is uncurving our hearts. It's pouring the love back onto God. And one of the ways that God teaches us the best way to do this is when we're pouring love out onto our fellow neighbors. And so it's like I'm doing a deep dive here theologically, it feels like, but the reason is when you pull all of these kind of ideas out and apart, 
are you doing things? Are you living in a way? Are you pursuing activities, your vocation, your family, your life in order to elevate yourself? Because you're thinking, what can I get out of it? Or are these things oriented around this concept of a family, which is the language of the New Testament people of God? And when you think about a family, you think about what's best for my brothers and sisters in Christ at the point of even saying, and it might not be good for me, but it's great for them. And of course, I'm talking to two counselors here. And so I'm not talking about self-deprecating. I'm not talking about a type of lifestyle that is minimizing your worth and value by no means, you know, abuse, emotional, like all. I'm not talking about any of that. What I'm talking about mm-hmm. is the sense of Jesus as a servant who came and served others because it was the ethos of what the gospel is. And that becomes the framework of how we live our lives with other people. So one of my favorite things to teach is understanding confidence in Christ as a prerequisite for identity in Christ, because I believe we can usurp that identity as a means to build up myself versus understanding that my confidence can come from Christ, which leads me to Ephesians 2. So in terms of, you're right, we're in this like heady theology space. (laughs) I think I followed most of what you said, Joel, but to turn that, I do have a divinity degree, but I still think I understood about 70% of what you just said. <laughs> Gosh, It's all good. It's good. But Ephesians 2. So the reason why, uh, the main reason why, if you will, is that verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he can show off himself. He can show off his own riches of mm-hmm. grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I think that motivation piece that you just you, you just pulled out at the end is so important because I'm constantly asking in counseling sessions or myself, right, as a parent, as a wife, as a friend, why am I doing the things that I am doing? So how do we then discuss, right, godly transformation is for God's glory, right? It's to show off the immeasurable riches of God's grace, but it's also I benefit from it, if I'm being honest. So, and if you're more sanctified in Christ, I benefit from it also. (laughs) So I'm thinking about in in marriage, for for instance, the more sanctified my husband is, the better off I am, because that means that I get to live with someone who's more like Jesus. Now, yeah. he doesn't always do that on my timetable, if you will. Okay. I'm a very easy person to be married to, I'm sure. <laughs> but if we're thinking about this term in terms of like real practicalities, I'm even thinking about in terms of being a mom. I'm a very driven person. I like to be accomplishing things. They see me working hard all of the time. Where do I balance that between this this works-based, we're going to get finished, we're going to be successful, we're going to accomplish great things versus we really need to slow down and really assess, like, why are we doing the things that we're doing? How do we, in a daily life, if we're going to get really practical, Hmm. what does that look like? I'm going to be super vulnerable. I think I'm horrible at this. Like, (laughs) <laughs> the way that I'm the way that I'm wired is very much like you. I'm like, I got done with my PhD and the next thought was like, maybe I do a postdoc. My wife almost had a conniption fit. There's no yeah. way. But what that does feel that. is Yeah, like it actually exposes a lot of motivation issues in your heart of mm-hmm. like, wait, and this is the idea of peace. Can we actually rest? Is it possible to rest or has our vocation become an idol that we then like really easily put up as this amazing thing? But at the end of the day, it's actually sucking the life out of you and it's making you a really difficult person to live with. On a practical level, I would say this. I've been super influenced by Eugene Peterson. He's wrote many books. And one of my favorite books that he wrote is the book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's this walkthrough of the Psalm of Ascent, and it's just brilliant. 
And what Eugene does for us is he reminds us that the Christian life is a journey that we walk through. And on the journey, we have to slow down enough to recognize what is the journey doing inside of us that then flows out from us. So again, on a practical level, with my kids, it's like pausing when we're driving, which is like the most not fun thing to do when you've got a car full of four kids, but something happens, there's a conversation that's taking place and I could overlook it and bypass it. Or I could be like, you know what? Let's stop. Let's grab some ice cream and let's just talk through. What does this mean? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to to say you love Jesus? I, this happened the other day. My kids were super upset because there was a kid who was getting bullied on the playground. They were upset, but they didn't know what to do about it. And so it's like, let's stop and let's talk about it. Um, another thing is when you have successes in life, stop and celebrate the success. It's mm-hmm. a healthy thing to celebrate the success. And then it's also super healthy to then ask, what did this change and what did this not change? When I got done with my dissertation, I'm horrible at celebrating successes. My, my wife has to be the one who forces me into it. And so we had this like great dinner and I went through that exercise. Like, okay, what has this changed and what does it not change? I'm like, okay, I guess technically now I got three letters at the end of my name. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. I can add that onto it. I've got this diploma I can frame, you know. It changed me as a person. I got done with mm-hmm. my dissertation and I realized there's so much about the scriptures that I don't know. It created mm-hmm. a deep sense of humility in me. I realized like this is a life, like all those things, right? And then what are the things that it didn't change? Like I'm still a dad. I still have these four children, Liam, Levi, Lucas, and Amelia. And this degree does not change the fact that I love them. And I'm still a husband. And my wife endured through those long hours. It's like, okay, what did this thing change? And what did it not change? And the things that it did not change, is that good or is it not? So for me, that's just like very practical things to walk through in life as you work. I just taught a thing on transitions. When you've got life transitions that are taking place, how do you navigate life transitions that seem super unstable, super insecure? Vulnerability is all there. And it's like, okay, what does this change? What does this not change? And sometimes Mm -hmm. we focus so much on all the things that are changing that we fail to be like, wait a minute, no, there's an anchor of things that don't change. And I got to fix my eyes on those things to give me a little bit of courage so that I can say the world is actually not falling apart. Have you ever said that Mm -hmm. phrase? Like, man, I think the world's falling apart. The best thing you can do is walk outside, look up into the heavens and be like, nope, sun's still there. Stars are still there. Sky's still there. <laughs> you know, it's like, yes, it feels like the world is falling apart from a very technical standpoint. It's actually still there. And so kind of navigating through that. So in, in terms of, so we have this striving into the Lord, which we're using that in a positive way, right? Versus this worked-based sanctification, meaning I'm trying to work my way towards being near to Jesus, those two opposing each other. I think it's important to say that sanctification is a gift from the Lord. If you've ever read David Palson's How Does Sanctification Work? I love that little book because it's such a sweet reminder that I'm not in control. And even as a counselor, like the burden of caring for other people, I'm not in control of their sanctification either. So I can be gifted and equipped and knowledgeable and help them in so many ways. But at the end of the day, it's the Lord who gives eyes to see and ears to hear. And that is that brings that peace that you're talking about, Joel, I think, of like, oh, actually, the world isn't falling apart. And also, I'm not in charge. So (laughs) and that's a good thing, like coming to a place where it's a really good thing that I'm actually not in charge. 
Yeah, it's like owning what we can own, what's right for us to own, and the things that are not, leaving them in the hands of the right people that do own it. And then at the end of the day, as Christians understanding, we have a sovereign God who's king over heaven and earth. And so mm-hmm. all things that need to be handled and dealt with, he is doing on his own time. It's, there's a quote by Spurgeon, which I love. I'm going to butcher it now. I'm going to just summarize it. But basically Spurgeon mm-hmm. says like, God's never been late. Like, think about that. Mm-hmm. Like, like mm-hmm. there's never been a moment in human history that God has been late. Which means that when God shows up, it's always the right time. And it's always in the perfect timing for you and for human history at large. I'm late to everything. So the idea that God is not late mm-hmm. makes me super, super assured and happy. That's so good. Yeah. He's rarely early, at least the way I assess when he should be showing up. And yet right. he's never late. He's always coming through. He's always acting at just the right time. Yeah. So Joel, I'd love to hear you kind of comment on what I think is a passage that brings these two realities together in a way that honestly boggles the mind, which is Philippians 2. You mentioned Philippians 1 earlier. Mm -hmm. Philippians 2, 12, 13 calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I think most of us have a tendency to say, I'm going to latch on to one half of that or the other. And and then just kind of assent to the other half and say, yeah, that's there too. Practically, what does it look like to hold on to that tension, to accept the tension, but then to actually live it out? I think most of us struggle with, okay, maybe I can accept it on an intellectual level. But what does it really look like to live out the working out of my salvation and knowing and having confidence that it's God who is at work within me for his good pleasure? Yeah. So we've got another hour. Is that what you guys told me in order to <laughs> No. I mean, here at the very simple thing, I think it's like we are passive recipients of salvation is like the first thing, you know? And we've been talking about this entire time that God and his kindness has drawn us into repentance, that God has done the act of salvation on the cross, that he has made it possible for people who were once enemies to be knit together because we've been knit to Jesus, the Messiah. And so the first thing is like when it comes to working out our salvation, there should be a really great sense of hope and comfort and ease in this perspective that we actually didn't have to earn our salvation in the first place. So like Mm. we received salvation as a free gift of the kindness of God. Okay, that's great. Now the next thing, so what? So I've got a couple of questions. Okay, we've been saved, but we've been saved from something, for something, and in order to become someone. And so it's like, we've got to be thinking through those things of like, when Paul here is talking about working out your salvation with fear and trembling, I think that fear and trembling is the sense of awe, but there's also an honest awareness that, which is again, right? Like a simple exercise, where would we be without God? Like, where would I be today without God? And I think there's a healthy aspect of this of visualizing and reminding and being like, my gosh, I'd be so much more selfish. My goodness, who knows what kind of mess I would have, like like going through all those things and then not ending there, but God save me from that. So like we've got that sense of we've been saved from something and it should create a deep sense of humility and awe. And then we've also been saved to something. This is the idea of working out our salvation. It's that earlier passage of being citizens and that Philippians gets. And he actually, this is 2.12. Um, Paul telegraphs this in one twenty seven, right? And so there's that idea of now we're citizens. And so we've got to live out this reality that has been given to us freely, but has a requirement, has expectations. 
of what faithful citizens ought to look like. And that all of this is in order to become someone. And who is that become someone? It's to be in the likeness and image of Jesus, who is the exact perfect likeness of God himself. There's a great quote, if you want to see the invisible God, look at the visible Christ. In the incarnation, we see the full picture of the invisible Father made incarnate in Christ. And so what does it look like to work out our salvation in that fear and in that trembling? I think it means to allow the Holy Spirit to, and we've used that phrase already, progressive sanctification, to allow common means of grace to produce a long endurance, to produce obedience, to facilitate opportunities to exercise, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. My marriage is a means of grace for me to exercise selfless love. My children, there are a means of grace to exercise the fruit of the Spirit, patience, and kindness, mm -hmm. and gentleness. These are all things that remind us. I go back to those three things that if it were not for the salvation that I freely received, I would not be this for my wife and for my children, for my mm -hmm. workplace. If it was not for the salvation that I freely received, it, it would be detrimental and destructive. And yet I did receive the salvation. I did receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's in Ephesians as well, that the Spirit of God is a guarantee of what is to come. It's a deposit down right now for what we're to experience. And so from a very common everyday standpoint, we have opportunities day in and day out to practice the type of human that is image bearer of God, that, that God loves, that he desires, mm -hmm. that he wants us to be. You could have one view of this and be like, oh my gosh, this is so much work. It feels unfair what is this whole like working out your salvation thing and how does it work? And then on the flip side, which is the way that I would think of it is actually we're doing it every day. Mm -hmm. Actually, we participate in this like consistently. We just haven't had a category maybe to put it in, but now you do. And now you can celebrate that. And now you can be like, man, when my wife and I get into a fight in front of my kids and then we've got to apologize to our kids and we've got to apologize to each other, we're like, that is working out our salvation and fear mm -hmm. and trembling. And yeah. that is, it's a beautiful thing that we get to participate in. One of my favorite things with people when you see the light bulb go off is helping understand that red flag of when you sin. We don't necessarily just have to be discouraged by it, but the recognition of it is God's gift to you. And you can celebrate that there's a red flag there. Because yeah. then you're able to say, okay, great, I'm sinning. Now I'm, I can rejoice in the fact that I even recognize that it's sin because now I get the privilege of repenting. Uh, and so the recognition of sin is actually a gift from the Lord that we might say, okay, and now we have to repent in front of everybody and w let my kids watch me with humility. There was a season, one of my postpartum seasons, and I struggled, I was struggling with anger and just having had a very short fuse with my kids. And I remember I would, I was working full-time on staff at a church and I had three kids. and It just was a lot, right? And I remember thinking, I am the last person that should be struggling with this. Like I am teaching young moms how not to do what I am going home and doing. I've got to get myself together. So my oldest at the time, she was seven, six or seven probably. And I sat her down and I said, mommy's really struggling. This is a problem. And I need to repent to Jesus because this is not how I want to love Jesus. It's not how I want to love you. And so from now on, when you see mommy struggling, I want you to ask me if you can pray for me. Would you be willing to do that? Yeah. She's like the sweetest ever. So for about six months after, any time, she wasn't scared at all. She'd be like, oh, we got to pray. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, man, okay. 
But it was so humbling because she was like, I see it. It's coming, mom. You've got to be aware of it. But it was this beautiful moment of me being humbled, right? I wasn't humbling myself. The Lord humbled me in that because even in moments where I didn't feel like being humble, she was helping me be humble on my behalf. And she would pray for me. And there's nothing that like is going to bring humility more than a six-year-old going, dear God, my mom needs you. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But opportunities for me to literally see the Lord transform. And eventually, like, it wasn't really a struggle, but that became something that was a story for us to tell. And so that opportunity to be transformed, that we might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, but to see that transformation and say, this is an opportunity for growth, not just something to be destroyed over because I'm sinning. I think that's a real practical like we have to ask for help, right? Like this isn't something to be done alone on an island. Yeah. And the practicality of it of your children, the people that you do life with, I think there's an easy tendency to be like the buddy that you have that you might see in person a couple times a year and is a text message mm-hmm. away. Like their A option might not be the best option. The mm-hmm. best option might be the person who you see every day that, you know, speaks into your life that like can call you on accountability stuff. And so don't short circuit the opportunity in the process. Like for you to be able to do that with your daughter, it's like, my goodness, like my kids are the same way. The most embarrassing ones are like my son Levi sometimes, like I'll be preaching at a church or something and he'll be there with me and I'll tell a story and then he'll be like, nah, that's not how it happened, dad. Nah, I don't think that's exactly. And I was like, wait a minute, I thought that is. And it's like, well, what a accountability of being able to be like, no, my kids are there. Like they're watching, they're participating in ministry and they're actually active agents of God for my mm-hmm. sanctification. Mm-hmm. God gave us these kids to shepherd well, but I think God gave these kids parents so that they can be a witness of the purity of heart of what a believer of Jesus should live and how they should live and how they should act. Mm-hmm. So I think, again, it's that reciprocity goes both ways. Yeah, I think some of the most... Christ-centered moments with with my kids or moments when I blew it and then had to go back and confess to them. And just their quickness to forgive was not only a testimony of God's work in their heart, but also it was conveying something of God's heart toward me. And so I love at the end of that passage that Paul says, for it it is God who works in you to willing to work for his good pleasure. And I I think Mm -hmm. many of us struggle with feeling like God is at work in me, but he's begrudgingly like, why don't you get it together? Like what, mm-hmm. what's wrong with you? And yeah, I'll show up. I'll rescue you again. But I would re- really appreciate it if you not keep doing this. And yet Paul says, no, he's, as you're working out your salvation, he's at work in you for his good pleasure. It's his delight actually to continue that work. You know, that even earlier in Philippians, he says he will complete it. He will bring this to completion, this work that he's begun in us. And it's his delight to do so. Well, and I love the imagery too, because the consistent imagery of God in terms of the anthropomorphic kind of just language is that he's a father. He's a father and he's, and we're his children. And I just think about my kids, like my old, my middle son, Levi has been super into the Lego things. Like he's creating the Lego scene. So he's got like a baby mm-hmm. group that he's been working forever oh, on. It's we awesome. Have that. And yet it's been super challenging for him. And so as a dad, I've sat back and He's asked me to like to help him. And really what he means is like he wants me to do it for him. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. I can point you at maybe the instructions and it's struggling and he's having to work this thing out. But as a dad there, like the other night he came down and had the whole thing done and showed it to Britt and I. And mm. this, the joy on his face of achievement of I did this thing. 
as a dad, as a mom and dad for both of us, that joy was made even greater by knowing the perseverance and the resilience and the endurance that he had to go through because we knew every moment he wanted to quit. We could hear him stomping in his room upstairs when he got frustrated. Like all of those <laughs> moments actually aided in that sense of like, gosh, this is such a beautiful, it was, our, it was a pleasure, you know, to have and to impose that into like God the Father to know that he's aware, he sees us, he's compassionate and empathetic to our plight and to our sin and even to like the fact that like we're in progress. And so when we do achieve some of these things, it's like how much greater is his pleasure knowing that he's walked through this whole thing with us, that he's mm -hmm. not, it's not like he's been hidden away. He's been observant of it and he knows, you know, what it, what the cost was. And it's like, this is why it was necessary for Jesus in the incarnation to come as a human. So that as Hebrews talks about, he's our empathetic and faithful high priest in every way that we would or could be tempted that Jesus has endured and been faithful. And so this stuff mm -hmm. is not foreign to, to God. It's actually something that he can relate to intimately through the Messiah. And so, yeah, I love that little detail there in the text that he takes pleasure. And part of that pleasure is because like they see the pain, he sees the pain and the process that we have to go through to get to that side. So really the distinction between striving well, like striving in faith unto the Lord versus that works-based sanctification, could we say then that's a matter of leaning into the character of who God is, leaning into knowing that our motivation is actually just loving him, which simplifies it? Or am I making it too simple? No, yeah, I think so. I go back to the Genesis account of creation. I think the details of the text are pretty, pretty important of God creates everything. After God has gotten done creating everything, he then places Adam and Eve in, in Eden. So then the question is, what do Adam and Eve have to do in order to enjoy the good creation? Nothing. Mm -hmm. So their vocation, when God tasks them to work, is on the seventh day, essentially. So their vocation starts with shalom. See, we do our work day to get to our Sabbath, right? Mm -hmm. But the way the ancient Israelites understood the creation narrative is Adam and Eve start their work day on the Sabbath. Like the Sabbath is the rest that actually equips them for the vocation to come. It drastically changes it. I think the same thing works for how we do our like good works or how we are obedient children. Like we're not obedient in order to get the affection, attention, and love of the Father. No, we work because we've experienced it. We have it. Like, we possess it now. So why wouldn't we want mm. to do those things? But again, like what I said earlier, it's very easy for day one to, you know, if day one was the Sabbath day, for it to quickly become not the Sabbath day. And then we're actually working to get to it versus saying, no, we're working from it. I think that could be like a dissertation on burnout is what you just did. <laughs> yeah, working, not that I know anything about that. Working from rest, not working for rest. That's yeah, exactly you know, it. That. That's great. Well, Joel, we could talk about this for a long time, I'm sure of it. But I am so glad that you've been here and been a part of this. This is a really fun conversation to have and super encouraging. I think this fills my tank up to go home and love on my kids and be joyful as I do it. So really grateful for you. Grateful for your ministry and hope we can keep connecting maybe somewhere, somehow. Yeah. Joel, where can people find you and just learn more about the work you're doing? Yeah, so I work for Proverbs 31 Ministries as Director of Theology and Research. And so really the main place where I do the majority of like my Bible teaching and just thinking theologically is on Instagram, just my last name at 
M-U-D-A-M-A-L-E. Not too many of those out there. So my name should pop up easily. And then my website is the same thing. It's just mudamali.com. And I've got like a little newsletter there called Bite Size Theology. That if you sign up, I send like a, you know, a theology introduction in five minutes or less, which is kind of fun. So you can learn more in those spaces. And if you go to the Proverbs website, I've got different teaching things that you can find there as well. That's awesome. Look forward to checking those things out and look forward to our listeners being able to follow you and learn more. So Joel, thank you so much. This is really a pleasure. You've been listening to This Versus That, a podcast of Anchored Hope Virtual Counseling. To learn more about this episode or our ministry at Anchored Hope, visit anchoredhope.co. Do you feel equipped to disciple your children? In today's hostile culture, you need a strategy for parenting. The Disciple Making Parent Ministry seeks to equip parents and churches to pass the gospel to their children, and they want to help you raise strong disciples of Jesus Christ who can stand firm in today's culture. Their book, The Disciple Making Parent, has been endorsed by Albert Moeller and Tim Challies. You can get a copy of the audiobook absolutely free. Simply visit thedisciplemakingparent.com slash free audiobook to get access. That's thedisciplemakingparent.com slash free audiobook.